Our scripture reading today is from Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. <clears throat> Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Amy, for reading that passage of scripture for us this morning. This is a, uh, we continue in this series on the parables of Jesus. And this parable is one that on its surface uh, is very simple in its construction. It's two people uh, that are contrasted with each other. Uh, but there's, there's, as it is with all of the teachings of Jesus, there's so much depth and substance to get into unpacking what it is that he's saying here. When I was growing up, uh, my parents became Christians when I was around five, and, and we started attending a church uh, that practiced um, going to confession. So I don't know if any of you have been a part of a church where there's a confessional booth and you go to confession, um, but my parents being, being young in their faith and really wanting to foster in my brother and I a, a relationship with, with Jesus and an experience of being a part of the church uh, urged us to do this. They urged us to go to confession. And so we would go a few times a year. And when you go into the confessional booth, um, there's basically two questions you get. The first question is the easy one. It is, how long has it been since your last confession? And it lures you into a false sense of security. Because the next question is, okay, what would you like to confess? Every Sunday morning, we have a time of confession of sin and assurance of pardon, right? Where we, where we have a corporate confession together, and then we have a time of silent confession. How does that go for you, the time of silent confession? Um, I, know, I know for some of you, uh, because I, I talk with you about this, that it's, it's hard to come up with things to confess, or you find yourself going to the same kinds of things over and over again. Uh, like for me, I remember confessing to a priest that I coveted my brother's BB gun. And, and even as a child, I remember thinking, am I wasting this dude's time right now? Uh, for others of us, we may feel like the, the 25 seconds or whatever we take to do that isn't near enough. I'm just, I'm just gearing up uh, by the time we have to transition out of that, uh, out of that time. Um, but it's, it, when we go to confession, when we take time to confess our sins to the Lord, the question is, what, what, how, what is that like for you? What, what do you confess? What are the kinds of things you bring to the Lord? Not just in that, but 
in the course of your life, when you talk about and when you pray and you think about repentance and you, and you think about your need for Jesus, what are the things that you, you talk to him about? Another way to phrase the question that may be a little bit more on the nose is, what's the worst thing you've ever done? And do you talk to the Lord about that? What's the deepest, darkest secret that you have that you keep from the world? This series on the parables is is really aimed at trying to see how do we live our lives in view of God? For many of us, we, we would recoil at the idea of, of God knowing the worst things about us, uh, that it's something that we would say, I don't even want to bring that into my prayer life. I don't really want to talk about those kinds of things before the Lord. But when we do that, when we say, all right, I'm, I'm just not going to go there. I'm not going to uh, prayerfully confess my sins. One of the things that happens as a result of that, and we see it happen here with the Pharisee, is we begin to forget the ways that our hearts are broken. We begin to normalize. And then when it actually comes time to confess and we dig as deep as we possibly can, all we can really come up with is, I coveted my brother's BB gun, or I gossiped. And this parable is an appeal for us to become better acquainted with our own brokenness and our own need for mercy. There's a scholar uh, who's devoted his, his part of his life to studying the parables named, named Kenneth Bailey. And he described his passion for these stories and for writing about the parables in, as, here's his phrase, as rescuing truth from the jaws of familiarity. So in writing about the parables, it's easy for us to read these things as though, well, I already know that story. I've heard that one a million times. But let's try to approach this one in rescuing truth from the jaws of the familiar and see what it's trying to teach us about life under the gaze of God. And so we're going to look at the characters in the story. We're going to look at where the story happens, the context in, where, in which these two men bring their prayers to the Lord. We're going to dig into it a little bit. Jesus identifies his audience right away. We've been taking time in this parable series to ask the question, what prompted this story? Why did Jesus tell the story in the first place? What, what was in play for him? Uh, what was happening around him? And, and here, Luke tells us the context. He says that to some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. So, so he's telling this story to, uh, to self-righteous people. In ways, in different ways, but we are, we, we are. We're self-righteous in various ways, in different ways, but we are, self-righteousness is a thing. Uh, it's a thing that's in play in the life of everybody I've ever known. It's certainly the case for me. Uh, the, the, the literal translation of, of the Greek in, in describing these people is to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, Jesus tells this parable. And it gives this stark contrast of two people. You have a religious man who would have been the expected hero of the story to the hearers, when Jesus said there was a Pharisee that was praying, when we hear, because 
you know, here in the here in the West, as people who have Scripture and we've read the Bible, and we 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 think of Pharisees in a very certain way. We think of them as the bad guys, right? We think of them as as the puffed up, uh, self righteous people. Whenever Pharisee, the word gets used, we're like, ah, oh, those guys. But in Jesus' era, they were respected. They were they were the religious leaders. They were esteemed in their communities, and so Jesus gives us a Pharisee who would have been the expected hero of the story. And then he gives us a tax collector, which would have been a clear villain. Not just somebody who committed sins, but somebody who was corrupt, somebody who was irreligious, somebody who was untrustworthy. And this is the person you would have expected to be the anti-hero in the story. So let's look at both of them. Let's start with the Pharisee. The Pharisee is this religious leader. He's devoted to the law of God. He is a student of scripture. He's somebody who is in charge and sure of his station in life. He sees himself as an example. It is his job. It is also his privilege to walk around and say, I am an example for you for how to live an obedient life before God. And so he's somebody who would have been very conscious of his righteousness of how he appeared, how he came across. He tended to it meticulously. He was the most religious representative of his culture and, as Jesus tells us, also the most unaware of his sin. How did he become this way? How did he become somebody who, while trying to be an example for what it looks like to be a faithful follower of the Lord, becomes somebody who is just completely out of touch with his own need for mercy. He's grown so comfortable in his own self-righteousness that he is unaware of his own sin. That's how self-righteousness works. We actually believe the we believe ourselves to be more righteous than other people. How do you do this? Well, all you got to do is just put yourself on a continuum where there's really unrighteous people on one end perfect people on the other end to figure out where you fall. And if you fall anywhere where there are people beneath you, you have mastered self-righteousness. You have said, because self-righteousness is, a, is not about saying, I am righteous. It's really just about saying, I'm more righteous than these people. And when Jesus describes this Pharisee praying, he says that he prayed to himself, or he prayed about himself. And there's this kind of self-address where he says the Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. Why did he think that this was acceptable? To say, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. I thank you that I'm not like robbers and evildoers and adulterers, or even like this clown over here, this tax collector. I don't even know why he bothered showing up, but he's here. I thank you that I'm not like him. I fast twice a week. I tithe. I tithe. So everybody can hear, you know, he's, he's proud of himself. Why did he think it was okay to pray this way? I think the answer is because he believed every word of his prayer. It was, as far as he was concerned, just an honest thing to say. I'm just telling the truth. It's the way it is. 
believed every word of it. He believed he was more righteous than the tax collector across the room. Many of us right now place ourselves on the continuum of righteousness too. And we find ourselves in very self-righteous postures. <clears throat> Let me share a bit of irony about this. One of the versions of self-righteousness that we have today is we take pride in acknowledging that we're not righteous. I'm going to be so authentic and transparent and vulnerable and such a mess and so quick to tell you how broken I am and how, how weak and messed up my faith is that you're going to look at me and think there's somebody who's really got their finger on the pulse of what God wants for a person. And we're going to say, that's right. I thank you, Lord, that I am not buttoned up like these Pharisees, but that I'm quick to be able to just tell people about how ruined I am and how broken I am and how flawed I am. I thank you that I'm not like these people who are so consumed with everything looking right. Do you see how it happens? We just flip the script and we become pharisaical by being self-righteously confident in our vulnerability and our transparency. And this is where maybe you feel uncomfortable now, right? Let me add to it. I'm good at this. Like, I'm really good at this. I am, I, I'm a professional. I've been a pastor for 20 years. I, I know how to walk up to this podium, this microphone, and speak in a way that sounds earnest. I can do that in almost any setting I'm in, and I can be aware of the fact that I am commanding the room in, a, in, in the way that I am performing the words that I'm speaking. And so sometimes, not all the time, sometimes I, I can get in my own head or be just not feeling it on a Sunday, but you won't necessarily know that because I can affect what I'm doing in a very calculated way. But you do that too. You do that too, right? We all do. Sorry, this is not in my notes. I'm riffing right now. But the point is, in Jesus' day, the self-righteous Pharisee was the one who was so proud of keeping all the rules and doing everything right. And we just have a version of that that's just the inverse, where we take a lot of self-righteousness out of being uh, humble and authentic, right, and, and transparent and, and on the edge and asking lots of questions and pretending like we don't have any answers for things and all that. And it's just another way of being self-righteous. But it brings forth these prayers from us where we say, I thank you that I'm not like that. Whew. Thank you, Lord, for making it so that I'm not like this person that I disdain on the other side of the room. The sad result of self-righteousness is that we become unaware of our sin and then we become unaware of who God is toward us. The tax collector. Let's talk about him for a second. Some of us really relate to him. He's this person who believes that his life has turned out to be a disgrace to God. You may resonate with that. 
You may be somebody who thinks, why would God love somebody like me? I'm, there's, there's nothing worthwhile inside of me. He's a man who knows that he has no respect among his neighbors. He's aware of this. Tax collectors were considered by Jewish people in Jesus' era to be traitors. And the reason they were considered to be traitors is because they were collaborating with Roman imperialists raising taxes for those who didn't have a right to their money. And day by day, he went out and he made his living taking money out of the hands of his fellow brothers and sisters and giving it to rulers who had no respect for their covenant God. And in the eyes of Jewish people, a tax collector was, he was a habitual sinner. His whole life was just committing sin. He kept on sinning every day. He was digging deeper into the shame and self-loathing of his condition. And he wasn't just a habitual sinner. He was also a known sinner. Everybody knew it. It wasn't a secret. He wore his sin, sin like a scarlet letter on his chest. Everybody knew what he was doing. And it wasn't just that he was a habitual sinner and a known sinner. He was a belligerent sinner. He was unaffected by it. He, was, he, just, he continued in the sin, knowing the disgrace it caused among his own people. And yet he kept at it because there was a payday. And he prized the payment of his sin over communion with his brothers and sisters. He found it acceptable to fracture his personal relationships with the people in his community in order to gain wealth. This tax collector in the parable was having a crisis of guilt. He's conscious of his sin. He knows, I'm the most irreligious representative in this culture. He's like the prodigal son in that he's at this distance and he's offering a prayer and he's asking He's trying to negotiate with God a little bit. And we can miss something powerful about this if we merely take the position that God, the point of the parable is that Jesus is saying, God justifies those who grovel more. As though that's the point, right? That God justifies those who grovel more than those who come with confidence. That's not the point of this parable. The point of this parable is the tax collector is praying be merciful to me. I know what I am. I know who I am. I know what I do. Be merciful to me. Reconcile me to you. So the question we have to ask of both the Pharisee and the tax collector is what hope do they have of being heard? What hope do they have of the Lord listening to them? And this gets really to the heart of what Jesus is teaching in this parable. And to answer that question, I want us to think for a minute about a detail that we might just gloss over, but it's really central to understanding. And that has to do with the setting of the parable, is that these two men are in the temple. The temple. What is that? Well, we may think of the temple as, well, the temple is the place that people build so that people can, the community can come and gather and, and worship God together. As though it's some just symbol of a place to do business with God that people have constructed. But that's not what the temple is. God's the one who gave his people the instruction for building the temple. 
He told them how to build it. And he told them where to put it. And he told them why. And the reason is because he said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And this will be an everlasting covenant and nothing will ever break it. And I will show you mercy and I will bless you and I will use you to be a blessing to the nations. God is saying to his people, I am your God. I know who you are. I know your sins. I know your duplicity. I know your idolatrous hearts. And I am binding myself by way of a covenant to you to show you mercy. And so when these men come to the temple to pray, they're coming to a place that God established, not man, for the purpose of meeting with him as sinners before a holy God. God's word is the basis of this tax collector's prayer. It wasn't his earnestness. It wasn't some conversion experience that he had. It wasn't his determination to try to do better. It wasn't even his faith. He was there because God's word bids sinners come. And when he beats his chest, standing at a distance, saying, have mercy on me, a sinner, he is appealing to a covenant promise that God had made. He's not hoping against hope that God may show him mercy. He's hoping in hope. He's approaching the presence of God in the midst of his sin with boldness that God is the one who keeps his covenant promises. And it is a covenant of mercy towards sinners. And so he comes. It's not a trick. It's not a stunt. He is going before God precisely as God said he should. And we should humbly and repentant, but also expecting God to be merciful. And that's what he is. Where else could he go? This parable is exposing each of these characters' relationships with God, who God is to them. And he exposes the basis upon which each believes they are justified before God. The Pharisee thinks he's justified before God because he's kind of crushing it. He's He's doing it right. He's certainly doing it better than everybody else, especially this guy. But the tax collector is saying, no, the only hope I have of being in a right relationship with God is for him to show mercy towards sinners. That's all I've got. And so I'm asking for it. I'm asking for it. So I ask you, upon what basis do you believe God will accept you? Upon what basis do you believe God accepts you? Some of you believe it's on the basis of your righteousness, which can look like rule keeping and being a classic Pharisee in the classic sense, right? I keep all the rules better than everybody else. Sometimes it's the righteousness of I'm the most vulnerable and transparent person anybody will ever meet. They're lucky to know me, right? And so you boast in this. But as you boast, you place yourself on a continuum of righteousness, no matter what you're boasting in. And you see some as beneath you, and you see some as above you. And you are confident of your own righteousness, and you look down on everybody else. Others of you are like, no, I am, I am a habitual, known, and belligerent sinner. 
And your struggle is to believe that you're worthy of the love of God, that you're worthy of his mercy. Some are convinced that we deserve his mercy because we're great. And others of us believe that we're just not worthy of anything good at all. And that's the struggle. On what basis would you believe that? Upon what basis will you approach God? What hope do we have of God hearing our prayers? Daniel chapter 9 helps us. I'm going to read a few verses from Daniel 9. It says this, We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, listen. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hear and act. For your sake, O my God, do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. If you bear his name, you are his, and he has bound himself to you. And his word binds him to you. His covenant of love binds you to him. The tax collector is in the temple because as a sinner, where else can he go to be restored? Too often we regard fellowship with God as something we have to clean ourselves up for first before we can approach him, lest we disgrace his holy presence with our failings. But do you not see that we have to come as we are? For that is who he has called to himself, us as we are. He doesn't leave us there. But he's the one who has the sacred right to clean us up and to redeem us. And so we come knowing that we're not hoping against hope that he will show mercy or that we'll catch him on a good day because God's fickle. But instead we show up because we know that he already has shown us mercy and he already has shown us grace. When? How? In giving us his son, Jesus, to live in our place, to die in our place, to set his name upon us as a seal He knows your self-righteousness. He knows how deep it runs. He also knows your desolation. He knows your habitual and belligerent sinful ways. And this is precisely what Jesus came to overcome by giving his life in exchange for yours. Have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for this story, this parable, the simplicity and the complexity of it. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see the places where we are trusting in our own righteousness. I pray that you would help us to see the places where we esteem others as either being better than us or worse than us based on where we feel we fall on a continuum of righteousness. Forgive us for that. Cause us to be people who hope in your mercy and grace, confident that you will give it and have given it. And Lord, 
teach us to draw near to you as we understand more deeply the complexity of our own brokenness. And, uh, and we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.